this is uh, Honoré Bashan, also known as X Brady. Shout out to Jay Havana. Shout out to Hood Talks. Love and respect. Yo, what's up? This is Jay Havana. You're listening to Hood Talks. And this is a Crazy Hood exclusive. In this episode of Hood Talks, we welcome hip-hop recording artist Honoré Bashan, also known as X-Rated. A former 24th Street Garden Block crib, X-Rated was arrested in 1992, along with four other men in connection with the home invasion that turned deadly. The arrest came on the eve of the release of his first solo album, Psychoactive. X-Rated was ultimately sentenced to 31 years to life, of which he served 26 years before being released on parole. Some would say this was bigger than hip-hop, and you might be right, but it was hip-hop, among other things, that kept Honoré sane. Although he spent over two decades in prison, that did not stop him from releasing over 25 projects. 13 of which being solo records. I had the opportunity to talk with Andre just a couple of months after his release from prison and on the eve of the release of his 14th solo album, The Execution of x Rated. Here's my conversation with Andre Bashan, also known as x Rated. In the beginning, do you remember how you were first introduced to rap music? Absolutely. Uh, my mom, my mom used to be, she was just a huge fan of hip hop music, and uh, she, she, she turned me on, totally. She uh, always, always had hip hop going in the home. And so I just got addicted to it, and uh, went from there. I started messing with my older cousins who were listening to Too Short and Grandmaster Flash, a little bit of Run DMC, the Beastie Boys. So my older cousin, Artie Barnes, really is the one who got me addicted to it. I know you mentioned some of them, but in those early years, who are some of the other artists that you listened to that really made you become a fan of the music? Um, wow, those early years, I was listening to everything just surely as a fan. Ice T. Six in the morning was big for me. Colors was big for me. The whole Power album. Uh, and then, you know, once NWA came about, that was it. NWA, EZE, DOC, the whole Ruthless group. And then uh, I, I started messing with the rap a lot crew real tough on what I was listening to. And I kind of hung out right there for a long time, many years. What was it about, let's say, the rap a lot crew? What was it about them that you enjoyed the most? I think that soulful quality to Scarface. There was just a, a quality to Scarface that all of hip hop had come to know. But in the beginning, when I was still a discovery, I was addicted to that voice and that storytelling ability. Really, that that storytelling ability of the Ghetto Boys as a whole inspired, instilled in me a, a, a determination to be able to do the same. Ice Cube as a storyteller and, and the Ghetto Boys as storytellers were, were probably my two biggest inspirations at the time. How did you start rapping? Uh, I started busting freestyle for the homies, really. Okay. They popped the trunk, we'd be at house parties or we'd be in the, just chilling in the project. Trunk popped with some 
George Clinton to Parliament playing, and I was just bust freestyle. Some of them 15 minute mixes, and I, I bust, I bust a freestyle the whole time. Yeah. And once they knew I could do it, then it started being a lot of that. They would ask for it. That kind of branched into uh, when busting rhymes at school, battle rapping at school, and you know some of my homies started started saying, "Hey, we think you could really do something." And uh, like swinging me toward that direction, like, man, you gotta record. Well, we know this person you could record with. You know, it'll be a beautiful experience if you record with this person. So I started doing that, mm-hmm. uh, working with with my boy, uh, my boy Percy Hunter from high school. We were at a continuation school together, actually, and uh, that kind of set it off. Once I got in his studio, it was murder after that. At what age was that? I was like 15, 16. Is that around the time when you realized that you wanted to be an artist and this is what you wanted to do for a career? At that point, I knew I wanted to be an artist from the perspective I wanted to make music. I didn't know I wanted to have it for a career. I wasn't, didn't have that kind of brain. Mm-hmm. But what I did know was that my homies, my homies liked my music and I liked the reaction I was getting from the homies. My first point of desire, my first desire was purely based on the homies love my stuff and I'm enjoying the fact that they bump it. So like if I would pull up somewhere and the homies would be bumping the song I made, I'd be like, yeah, I got him. You know, that was really it for me. I just wanted my homies to like my music the way I liked Ice Cube. I wanted them to bump me like I bumped Cube. Bump me like I bumped Faith. Aside from, from hip hop, did did you have any people that you looked up to as mentors? Besides hip hop, my football coach in uh, Texas, I went to I went to Texas when I got in a little bit of trouble in California. My mom sent me up there, and so I had a football coach who was, you know, somebody that I really, really, really respected. And so, you know, he was he was the guy. Mm-hmm. Football coach. Uh, Probably after that, all my mentors came from the street. Right. Period. And Cedric, until I met Cedric Singleton. Cedric Singleton, he's the CEO of Black Market Records. Was that the first label you were signed to? Yeah, I, I made 24 Deep Productions with my brothers, with, with Robert Starkey, Raymond and Rich Starkey, the twins. We started a company called 24 Deep Productions and started uh, pushing our tapes on our own. Mm. And one of those got got to Cedric Singleton at Black Market Records. And then Miko Ewell, Young Meek, Sebo's little brother, started uh, campaigning for me to be able to get with Black Market. So I went with him and went to a meeting. Really not even Black Market said it was, they had done some projects, I think it's like Black Rhino or something like that, Black, Black Rhino. And uh, I was the first one, once, once I got, once, I met Cedric and we started working on my project. I was the first one to ever do a record with them. It was the Black Market Records, the very first Black Market Records artist ever. How was that first meeting with Cedric? Do you remember? Uh, it was pretty intense. He had, there were some rappers in there trying to give us, you know, doing their thing. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just non- nonchalantly showed up. And, uh, you know, they had a beat going. And I had the verses that were, were became that sickening. 
because the rest of the record psychoactive was almost all done already. Mm, okay. So I I came I came and did that sickness and uh they just couldn't believe it. They they hadn't heard, you know, and nobody really heard nothing like that. And I at the time I you know, I was inspired by by Daddy Big Daddy Kane at that point and Cool G Rap and mm. uh Church tracks for naughty by nature you know in terms of flow for like the teachers I, w- I was very aggressive with, with flow delivery and making sure that you know my stuff didn't sound like what somebody else was doing right so it was highly un- highly unusual once they heard me speak it shut them out and that's dope uh, that's dope at a very young age you had that mentality of like even though you were inspired by big daddy kane and tretch but you didn't want to sound like them. You wanted to be original. You wanted to sound like yourself. Yeah. That's very yeah, dope. Thank you, man. I, I just felt like, you know, you can hear a lot of influences in me on Psychoactive. And I, I think that if anything, I wanted to sound like hip-hop. You know, the culture, I felt like it was mine already. I, I have been so much of my life because of my mom and, and, and my cousins and all of that. That hip-hop felt like, I felt like I owned a part of hip-hop. Right. Like how people are with their football teams or their baseball, basketball teams. Like we won, we, you know, they like the Raiders or the Niners or the Cowboys, whatever their team is. They feel like that's it. We won the Super Bowl. Like they took the snap or something. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt about EBE or Too Short. You know, we 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 got a banger. We got a banger. You know, if I discovered some new music, like oh, we we killing it. You know, it's yeah. to me that yeah, that Two Live Crew and Band in the USA and. You know, for the the letter from the FBI and from the police that meant something to me. It felt like I was doing something, like I had accomplished something because I felt like they represented me. And then I wanted other people to feel that I represented them too. So my my psychoactive is very influenced by the culture. It sounds like the culture. It sounds like straight out of Compton. It sounds like life is too short and born a magic. Sounds like the ghetto boys. We can't be stopped because that's what I wanted it to sound like. I wanted to sound like I belonged in the culture. And if you listen to that kind of music, when mine came on, I fit. I was supposed to be there. So like this goes back to your a career thing. Yeah. I didn't. I still had a game mentality. So to me, I wanted to be ruthless records. Like when I was 16. I wanted Wolfman's and Priority on my record because that's what was on Ice Cube's shit with mm-hmm. NWA. You know, MC Ren, D.O.T. had that Wolfless Atlantic Records. Michelle A. had Wolfless Atlantic Records. That mattered to me. And, uh, so I needed mine to be either say what Two Short said or say what what, what E.G.E. said. But, but, but that was my goal. I wanted to be I didn't understand dollars-wise. I didn't care about that at all. All I cared about was being in the crew. I want to be a part of this crew. I want to rap with this crew. I belong with this crew. I would fit with this crew, and I believed it. So I always approached... I think my entire career was predicated on feeling like I was supposed to be with Dr. Dre. Right. Honestly, I, I felt like whatever I thought it took to be one of his MCs. Because when he did the D.O.C. album, that was hip-hop. You know, you could hear more gangster stuff. You had battle rap in T Ran. Mm-hmm. You know, you had that element to NWA, but when DOC's album dropped to me, that felt like, okay, Dre was letting the culture know that, hey, I got that too. Like, he had always wanted to be purely hip hop. He was a student of the culture. Mm-hmm. And as a student of the culture, I saw that and I 
I, I was inspired by that. Like, if I got with Dre, I'm going to make an album that impacts the culture. I'm going to I'm gonna rhyme, you know, be a dope rhymer, not just no James Bay that raps, but to be an artist that painted pictures with the words, told stories, actually to get in the back and forth with another MC and survive it or win it. I wanted to be that dude because of what I was hearing with Dre and D.O.C. You know, I was like, okay, the West can do it too. Because before that, it was Big Daddy Kane. You know, I was listening. And if, if you listen to West Coast Hip Hop early on, you weren't going to hear a lot of battle rap. No, you're right. You're it, was, right. it wasn't going to be, you know, we had Rodney Owens, Joe Cooley. And then you had, it, it either was going to be girls and, or it was going to be gangsters. So we didn't do nothing in the middle of that. We did girls, drugs, and gangsters, period. Mm-hmm. On the East Coast, KRS One was in a battle with MC Shan. His daddy came in the Juice Crew. You know, he had that whole experience. So I'm listening to, I'm listening to the Symphony at the same time that I'm listening to NWA. And to me, like, okay, these are two drastically different worlds. Marty Mall's crew was all about being the best rapper, mm. and NWA's music was about being the best gangster. And so I was like, there got to be a middle ground. And when I heard D.O.T., I thought, okay, this is near closer to what that middle ground was. And so, although on psychoactive, I went nuts, did my thing, and you could hear that ghetto boy Scarface influence. Mm-hmm. I'm preoccupied with being the best rapper, even on that record, even there. With that album, Psychoactive, when you went to trial, that's the album that the courts used against you, correct? They did. They, I wouldn't say so much the court, but the district attorney did. The district attorney introduced the album and argued with the court why it should have been uh, admissible. And the judge really didn't go for a lot of that on based on First Amendment protection. You know, common people. You know, people don't give judges a lot of credit. They get so worried about law enforcement and district attorneys. But for the most part, the judges are the ones who set the, the stage for what a trial is or isn't and what your rights are and aren't. Mm-hmm. And if we, if, as a culture, we learn to have more respect for that part of the game and not view the judge as fuck the system, but as this is the person, if anything, that's going to protect my rights, then we would be in better shape. But but it was it was the judge who, who said no. And then they started trying to use different tactics to keep you bringing it up. These lyrics, uh you know, whatever song or something, you know, they try to bring up song titles, but he wouldn't let them play the songs in court at all. And they ended up using the album cover, correct? Yeah, yeah, he was able to use the album cover hmm. and the track list, but he was not able to use the songs themselves. Gotcha. Just, just, they were able to use that in the course of their argument that this is that we believe this is a murder weapon, even though they didn't find a murder weapon. So it's like, well. You could just say anything. Like, I'm going to bring a picture of any gun in here and say, I think it's a murder weapon. And like, that doesn't make sense. The judge decided to let him have the argument because it was possible, but to let us have our argument because it was also not possible. Right. And so, he, you know, in the sake of fairness, he let us fight that out. But that was that was uh, one of the first times. It's not the first time in the trial where it's going to used against somebody like that, the music and stuff. I know my boy Schooly D with stuff like that, that whole Philadelphia crew, PSK, mm-hmm. uh, they went through a lot of that and I, I'm up on it, but nobody would like what I went through, having a, a trial be that designed around you being a rapper, not about what I did and didn't do either. Because you know, according to the law right now, I would never be 
I could never be tried as an adult. For mm-hmm. one, I could never be sent to a 180 design institution of maximum security right now because of the felony murder rule being struck down. I could never be charged with murder. I could never be charged with first degree murder before my crime right now because they never said, you know, it wasn't about if I individually killed my victim. Mm-hmm. It was about five five people and one of y'all did it and if you went with somebody, then all y'all guilty of the crime, no matter what. And so right now, today, I could not be charged with, with what I was charged with, couldn't be convicted of it, couldn't be tried as an adult, and, and actually witness served that time. <laughs> huh. Right now, today, if I, if I was arrested for the same exact thing, I wouldn't have done any of that time in prison, none of it. Jeez, man. It's not legal. Not because of, it, it, the changes in the law is literally not legal for me to experience that again. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that, that the way I was convicted was so unjust that through the eyes of the justice system, the Congress, the Senate, and the voters in California, that you can literally not do that to somebody again right now. How old, how old were you when you um, got convicted? I was 21 when I got convicted. And at what age did you go in? I went in at 22. 22. I was 22 when I got off the bus as my first institution. Damn. It's not legal again. Not legal for me to get off the bus where I got off the bus at anymore because I was a youth offender. So mm-hmm. not legal for me to be to get off the bus where I got off the bus. Uh, not legal for me to get sent where they sent me after I was classified. Literally every single thing that I experienced right now, no juvenile could ever experience it again in the state of California and the United States Supreme Court. That's crazy. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Let's fast forward to your third solo album, Unforgiven. This was your first album to reach the Billboard charts. Do you remember that moment when you found out you made it on the charts? Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, a lot of the problems I had reaching the charts was related to the story unwillingness to sell me. So I had Billboard chart demand. But I didn't have Billboard chart distribution because stores, before I was convicted of a crime, were refusing to carry my record. And so that had never been done to an artist where the stores was outright refused to carry someone's music. And so I had a situation where no tower records were carrying. You know, imagine if you know where how all these different places. Imagine if Tupac was it. If Tupac was charged with rape. And the stores decided they refused to carry his music, how much money they would have lost. Mm-hmm. So while they were doing that to me, they weren't doing that to Pop. And Snoop Dogg was on trial for murder, but they still carried Doggy Style mm-hmm. because they wouldn't didn't want to lose the money. So it shows you how hypocritical the industry was. Right. These record stores, that they did that to me, but didn't do it to Pop and Snoop because they would have lost too much money if they had refused to carry Pop and Snoop's music. So I have, we had to ship our own stuff to people. We had to ship our stuff to do consignment deals with mom and pop stores. We had to, to mail that stuff to a lot of the people who wanted it. And so that's what slowed me down the first two records. And even then, we still managed to get to Playboy magazine for Exorcist and Source magazine for Psychoactive Exorcist and all of those. Mother Dog was able to actually get the national exposure for a record. So I got a record with national media attention that we couldn't get to all national outlets until Unforgiven. Hmm. So by the time Unforgiven came around, 
so many people were fighting over the uh, First Amendment right aspect of it that it was almost impossible for them not to carry the music. But second to that, I had hit a point in pop culture in, it, in, in that, the American psychology where mm-hmm. they would have lost money if they didn't carry the record. So they, it ain't like they grew a conscience and cared about me. What happened to them was if they didn't carry my record, they were going to lose money. So they decided to carry the album. How we hit the billboards. So, so when I found out about it, I felt the sense of vindication. Like, that's why I vintage his mind was, you know, I did nefarious when they vintage his mind. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like, yeah, I, you know, y'all step on me all this way trying to stop me. Law enforcement, the media, all these different levels of resistance that I was experiencing. And it wasn't worth it. It couldn't stop it. And so I, that fueled that there was a certain kind of anger involved in it. I felt vindicated when I hit the charts, really. No, yeah, I would too. So Black Market Records, that was an independent record label, correct? Right before Unforgiving, we got a deal with Priority. And so, like, what ended up happening, we had that priority aspect as well when we went to drop off my night, Unforgiving, and the rest of them. We just had so much strength in the network of Black Market Records from everything that the company had learned from Priority Records and Mm. putting out another system. It was almost like, it was almost in our favor. The skills that tipped to our favor. For your second album, Exorcist, you recorded your vocal tracks for the entire project over the phone while you were on trial. However, your third album, titled Unforgiven, the sound quality improved a lot compared to the second project. If possible, can you share how you went about recording your vocals? You know, that's one of those questions where it's funny you know, people like to be abusive to your name. All the different mysteries out there in hip hop surrounding what I did and didn't do, but people act like loose lips have sank some of my statuses, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, well, people still got to ask me questions about extremely gangster aspects of my life because I never said nothing. Mm-hmm. And so, so we're in a situation right now where I don't know how much of them. I can't answer them questions. Some of them questions got to go to the grave with me. When you're in prison, a lot of things are, uh, a lot of things, you can buy almost anything you want. If I wanted some plutonium, I was going to get it. And and as, as we started getting in circumstances where investigations and things like that, it got easier for me because, you know, the, the one thing you do know is if you do something right or wrong, the first people that's going to know you did it are the cops. Mm-hmm. The cops going to read your file, the counselors. And words gonna get around that you can or cannot hold your mud. Right. And so, once people find out you're willing to go to the dungeon, you'd be surprised what you can get after that. So that was kind of why my career never stopped. People looked at it like, man, this dude, he got 31 of life because he wouldn't tell on his on his crime on his homeboy, and now he's in the pen going to the dungeon because he won't tell on the cop, he won't tell on the freestyle, he won't tell on this or that, and so those chunks of time where I would vanish, that's what it would be. I'd be under the prison. Mm-hmm. And, but then I'd get out of that and then I'd get whatever I wanted everywhere I showed up to. I did a red carpet. And so that just, you know, it creates hate amongst the prisoner population. So they struggling to get some top ramen noodles when you walking around wearing, you know, $50,000, $60,000 worth of jewels and got a ring full of food. And so that'll create hatred. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it did. You know, it did. And that's why... But the police, when it comes to that aspect of it, man, I got whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it, because they already knew what it was going to be. So your music 
It's listed as West Coast Hip Hop, G-Funk, Gangsta Rap, and Horrorcore. How do you feel about hip hop having those subgenres? Is it a good or bad thing that helps identify the type of music an artist makes, or is it something that categorizes you? I think it's both, but does the culture need to have these different lanes? I think so. Like, you know, Prince Paul, members of De La Soul's production team became people who made horrorcore hip-hop, mm. but they made it as art, the grave diggers. You know, you had that particular yeah. aspect of the culture with people who did it artistically. Someone can't say Prince Paul and RZA aren't, like, part of the fabric, the foundation of the culture. These dudes built the, founded, the, the fabric of the culture that even pop artists used to stand on. Right. So there was always that aspect, that fantastical aspect. I think Cool Keith and the Ultramagnetic MCs back in the day used to do a little bit different, darker, more quirky, space-age-oriented type of music that was lyrically vicious as well. And so, you know, if you if we said there was only one kind of hip-hop, what, what kind would they decide that was and what would we be stuck with in the culture? What would that... How many different people wouldn't have had a career if yeah. they decided, if you don't make Fresh Prince in the Bel Air or Fresh Prince... DJ doesn't get in the first Prince hip hop, you ain't hip hop. If somebody had decided that, then we get no public enemy. And if some, somebody decided public enemy was the only kind of hip hop you could have, then we wouldn't have got the Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. And so, if we have no Beastie Boys, we probably arguably have no Eminem. True. So, like, you, it's hard when you start tugging at those threads of what if, you know, we would, we would actually unplug a lot of different things from the culture. So to me, the subgenres are necessary. Uh, two Live Cool, what was Two Live Cool? You know what we call that hip hop? People argued that wasn't hip hop, yep. that ain't this, that ain't that. But look at the footprint and, and their impact on the culture. If there was no Two Live Cools, there's a lot of people that wouldn't have had a job. A lot of people in, in Miami that make hip hop that's nothing like Uncle Luke's work that wouldn't have jobs if it wasn't for Luke, they would have never been able to give us who became Cool and Dre. Mm-hmm. The street runners, people, you know, even Fat Joe going to Miami and building Terror Squad out there and giving us all the people that came to be some of the hottest producers in the in the world came mm-hmm. out of that system. And so the reason why Miami became the hip-hop hotbed was because of Eli Cool and the work that Uncle Luke did. So if we have subgenres, what is traditional gangster rap might not have been able to eat. Rick Ross would have never made no money in Miami if Uncle Luke don't do what he did. Trick Daddy, these people so different artistically, but their roots all come back to the fact that DJ, that, that Luke and his team did the work they did. And so I say when you study our culture, you know, what all in, in, a, in a system, like why is Sacramento relevant? We hear a lot of talk about Mozzie this and Mozzie that and why. It's supposed to be fuck Mozzie or not fuck Mozzie, and I've never been willing to do it. And one of my reasonings is the same way he's able to tour somewhere and say I'm from Sac with pride, and, and, and a lot of that got to do with the fact that we made Sacramento relevant in, in the hip hop period, mm-hmm. to where he didn't have to prove that his town had sitters or that it mattered that he was relevant. You know, a lot of people had to prove what was St. Louis if Nelly didn't come out. You know, Nelly came out 
and he dealt with the why doesn't St. Louis have rappers or you the first one. Everybody after him didn't have to answer them questions. And Chuck Nunn is doing that in Kansas City right now for a lot of people. A lot of people who don't have to answer those questions because of the work that he did. And so I look at it the same way. You know, we, we got to be grateful for people who paved the way for us. And you never know who's going to pave the way for you later. You know, because of the work that you do or, or the work they did. Right. A lot of people end up with jobs and so if you the top of city off. So Miami got that story, Atlanta got that story, Chicago has that story, Houston has that story, hip hop got a lot of locations. Mm -hmm. Oakland has a story in hip hop because it's too short and the groundwork he laid that allowed the loonies and drew down and all those guys to have something to stand on when they came out. Right. And so I, I view it as SOB and all them kids popping in Vallejo right now owe a salute to, to E-40 and Mac Drake because they the ones who made Vallejo matter. It's true. You know what I mean? I, I know who, if you in Boston, you know what Vallejo is because of Mac Drake and E-40. Yep. And, and some new kids that say, I'm from, where you from, man? Are you rapping? I'm, I'm from Vallejo. They like, oh, the first thing they gonna ask you is, you know, 40 you're in Mac Drake. That's why, that's why I think you got, we gotta be careful about categorizing you know, they, if I'm in the NFL, I could be proud of being in the NFL. And hip-hop is my NFL. But just because I play for the Raiders don't mean I get to say, fuck the NFL. Mm -hmm. I might say, fuck, if I'm a Raider fan, I might be mad at the Chiefs or the Chargers or, you know, my division, the Broncos, fuck these niggas, I'm blah, 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 we gonna win, we gonna beat them. But if you said, fuck the NFL, that's your own job that you said, fuck. Yeah. Fuck your own workplace. And so to me, that's how hip-hop is the NFL. And we got different teams. We got different conferences. We may have different divisions. But we all play for the same league. We all wear the same shield. That shield is hip-hop. And so they can call it what they want to. But now you say that's just professional football. But there's college football. There's high school football. There's junior high college football. There's league football. Junior high school football. Mm -hmm. Right? And so hip-hop has that same thing. If some little dude is a dope rapper, he's doing or or whatever, that, that might just be his TV league. You never know. Scarface started out making horrorcore hip-hop and then came to be one of the most soulful, truthful, honest rappers in the history of the culture. And so what if, what if we told him what he had to be? Well, we would have never got the fix or deeply rooted or the diary. Like, come on, bro, can you yeah. imagine hip-hop without without the diary and untouchable and the fix? Like, that's crazy. So you gotta, yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful. Listening back to all your previous albums, is there a body of work that stands out the most to you? And why? Oh. I think the one that's gonna stand out the most and why is gonna be exorcism. Because I'm, I'm, I got arrested. I'm in the Sacramento County Jail. I ain't never supposed to make music again. I'm supposed to go off, get convicted, and be gone. And hip hop moves on without you. The culture moves on without you. Mm -hmm. And with all that pressure, and again, the face of all those those odds, I go find a way. You know, mess with Mac Dre and Black Market and John Bosch and in harmonics, the hanger. I find a way just produced one of the dopest albums ever created mm -hmm. and, and it's something that's a certified hip-hop classic a 22 year old album that they still talk about right now across three generations and uh to me no matter what i did after that even i'm forgiving uh 
that was that was when they knew this dude ain't going away. Because mm-hmm. you could, you no one would have been ever expecting unforgiving, and it would have came out, and they'd have been like, "Wow, this is up." But the struggle, even the sound quality, you can't appreciate unforgiving if you never got exorcist and couldn't appreciate that. So it's true. The, the sound quality, the struggle with the sound quality being upgraded on Unforgiven was that much more of an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, this will sound like he in the studio and the music is so different from what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Even even my prior record, it, it was a curveball even from my own album. Yeah. And so I think it got to be arguably Exorcist or Unforgiven, but I think it's Exorcist. Kind of going back to the charts and it ties in with um, Psychoactive uh, Exorcist and Unforgiven it's it's almost as if by them by Tower Records and by all these um, companies not wanting to uh, support your music and have your music in there it's like they want they didn't want to see you succeed they wanted to shut you down they wanted you to stop creating music because they feel they almost it's like as if they felt like well if we're not going to put his stuff out nobody's going to hear it but you kept at it you kept at it you yeah. kept at it and the demand was there so big congratulations yeah, for that man big congratulations for that thank you man yeah they were trying to kill my career a lot of the things people think about me came from the media and they you know they don't question it it's like there is a such thing as fake news you know who said I wrote a song about a crime I committed was it the district attorney or was it the media mm-hmm. who said it that came from the media that didn't come from the from the courts that came from the media. The media ran with that story because they could sell it. Yep. So they sold that whole thing argument. You know, who said, oh, like everything that you see out there about me, most of it came from the media and people started repeating it. I built a cult following with the help of Brother Lynch and people that was out there screaming my name, Looney Paulie Young, Team Eddie, Classic, and Blizzo, Big Nola, the people that never let my name go, Smith Dirty, across generations from 1992. In 2018, all these people that know about me in these different age ranges, but they were the only ones I had out there as a vanguard to protect, to protect my man mm-hmm. against, you know, stuff that people were repeating that they read somewhere and then expounding on without ever really hearing from me what I believed or what, what the truth was. When you were in prison, what kept you sane? Hip-hop. And, and hip, first it was hip-hop. Writing, writing, the desire to create, fighting to create, having that opportunity. That's what did it. And then after that, it was the love and respect of my own family. What did you learn about yourself? I learned that I got massive faith, and I learned that uh, I'm a resilient person, and I learned that uh, both of those things would be rewarded if you maintain them. Resiliency and faith, I learned that I got an abundance of that. I got enough of it for 20, 40, 50 people. And, uh, and I learned that you will be rewarded if you, if you possess those two qualities. After all these years, how did it feel to see Cedric Singleton again? It was great, man. That's my rap guy. He is to me what Jay Prince is to Farface. You know, what Jay Z is to Kanye. You know, he's, you know, what Baby's supposed to be to the hot boys. Right. He is my rap dad. That's my pop. Rap pop. I'm, I'm rap pop. Tino, you know, love. Maybe that old thing. But that's my rap dad right there. So, seeing it was a massive, uh, uplifting experience, man. It was yeah. heartwarming. Yo, what's up? This is Jay Havana. 
make sure to check out all the other podcasts in our network podcasts like family ties fatherhoods bars and buckets dream big hip-hop lost in translation and drink champs available on all digital platforms and crazyhood.com now let's get back to my conversation with honoré Bashan, also known as x-rated so your new album the execution of x-rated what's the meaning behind the title the true meaning about behind the title is that there was a process that went about where they were attempting to kill me off i felt like the government the justice system uh the culture the media inmates people were trying to execute x-rated purely for existing as a concept and then that's one layer to it. The other layer is there was a psychology that I possessed in, in that character that also needed to be executed by me. The belief that, you know, everybody should be harmed or anybody could get it, everybody kill us. That concept that fuck life and anything in it, that it was crippled die. All these ignorant things, bitches ain't shit, you know, so we supposed to be taking advantage of women and you're supposed to be think about all the cultural stigmas out there the stereotypes that we imbibe and we, we accept the truth and we teach that shit to our youth through the music right bitches, if you love one woman you're weak you're gonna get played by some girl like you just so what you do all this supposed to not have a woman right yeah or is this <laughs> or is this sleep with them and you keep it moving like that's sustainable you're supposed to just you, you weak if you love a woman and so I started I started executing the stuff that I had accepted I started killing that off so that psychology of negativity evil darkness and uh, absence of love and respect that had to be killed that had to die because I didn't want I couldn't come on like that but I also literally wouldn't be freed like that they wasn't gonna let that dude out of prison. Right. And so anybody who wanted, wanted that psychology to stay alive, to me, what they telling me is they wanted me to stay in prison. And I'm trying to tell them, bro, the only way for me to come home was to really change my life, for real. You can't you can't fool these people. You know, they change your shit. You know, what they believe you're going to you do, you know, you, you do become sophisticated in that environment. I learned something. You think, what do you think I learned in, in out of out of two murder trials and and every charge you can think of, one two oh three two point five, one eighty six, one eighty six point two two, well one eighty seven A PC. I fought all of that. So I went to trial and learned exactly how to not get caught for murder. They taught me how to kill you and never get caught for it because I had to fight it. I know every single way they gonna catch you, forensics, all of that, they taught me. And, they, and I'm not the only one they taught us all that guy ever got charged with that. You went through a trial and was halfway woke through it. You won't know, well, I know what not to do when I go knock somebody's head off their body. You know what not to do. You know what you better wear. You know what you better do with it when you're done with it. You learn all of that stuff. You know what to say to the cops when the cops show up. You know to ask for your lawyer and how and why. Right. You know all the ways to get rid of a homicide detective. You know all the ways. I know every single way to, to, to beat a murderer. Period. I, I, I could be somebody's lawyer right now. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if you're a government official, you're conscious that you this person knows how to hurt people and actually get away with it. You could release someone into this world who could be dangerous to society. And then who is dangerous? It ain't even a question of could be. 
they what we had to convince him was that I did not pose an unreasonable risk of violent recidivism to the community. So it was never did I pose a threat. They like you pose a threat. Is is that threat unreasonable? And that was the standard by law by the United States Supreme Court. The standard was do I pose an unreasonable risk of violent recidivism to the community? And so you got to demonstrate that that's all. You know, I don't, not only do I not pose an unreasonable risk, I don't I don't want to pose a risk at all. So that while we got everybody trying to prove how gangster they are, I just went through an experience where you got to prove how gangster you're not. And and I tell people, what's more gangster than that? What's more gangster than having to prove you're not gonna hurt nobody? Hey man, I really don't mean to hurt nobody. Everybody trying to get us to believe who they gonna hurt. I got a gun on Snapchat. I got a gun on YouTube. I'm right. you. And it's like so busy trying to prove and get us to believe it, but we, me and my brothers, just had to literally convince a government agency without throwing nobody under a bus that we just literally, I personally, I can guarantee you, I'm not about to go harm somebody. Which means that they know for sure that you can and you could, and that's gangster. And it's more gangster than not be with that anyway. It's true. You do what you gotta do for your family. So anyway, that's what I went through, man. And, and that's kind of what I feel like the changes that had to happen. You can't play with those people. And you should want to. Gavin Newsom is the governor now of California. Jerry Brown, the governor, had to sign off on my release. The governor, I, I owe these people a debt. They gave me back to my family. I don't have a right to come out here and do something that's going to be insane on Gavin Newsom's career or Jerry Brown's resume. You know, I don't have a right to go do something like that. I have to uphold and maintain and be who they believed I was out here so that they can justify that. Not only justified, I want them to be able to have somebody ask them, hey man, what you, if, with this dude is out here pushing this, this particular movement, and they can say, I know, I, I knew he would. You know that mattered to me, bro. Yeah. That matters. What's your writing process like? Do you prefer to be in the studio when you write, or do you write whenever you feel inspired? Now, I write when I feel inspired. I'm not a fan of writing in the studio, but I can and I do sometimes. Usually, if I got somebody on a song, then I'm willing to write in the studio. The time it takes them to finish is the time it takes me to write my verse. Mm. I'm a very fast writer, so I, while everybody else is laying vocals, I'm, I'm listening to the beat knocking my song down. But, uh, I wrote COVID like that. Wrote COVID in the studio while Bird was recording his vocals and the, and the engineer while uh, Paxton. Chris Paxton was actually arranging the beat. And by the time they said, all right, we're done, who's next? I was like me. And went in there and knocked it down. But other than that, to me, $71 an hour ain't where you, uh, you don't, you don't sit there and rock I can right. write for free at my kitchen table. You know what <laughs> for I mean? sure, for sure. Yeah, for sure. so by the time we get in the studio, we ready to, unless I know it's a solo song, and then, and then if that's the case, then I'll write it before I got there. But if I know I got a feature on it, I'm willing to write at the studio. Cool. Most people are generally slower than me. How many songs did you record for the album? And how many made the final track list? I think I did about 20. The track list got up to 28. And I cut it to 24. And then I cut that to 20 count interlude. That's a good, that's yeah, a, that's a good amount of songs. Compared to the uh, this day and age when people are only releasing like sometimes albums are like less than ten songs. Um, do you have any features on the album? Just my squad. I got uh, the bird. I got low key. I 
I'm introducing the bird. You know, he's my guy. He's part of Block Star Entertainment, and uh, his album is gonna be amazing record. Cool. And uh, I think he got a he got a story to tell. He's from LA, and he got a story to tell that ain't been told in hip hop, and that's hard to do. Being a white crib and everything that he went through in the streets and in, in, in the justice system, uh, that's a story that ain't never been told in hip hop. And so we're gonna tell it by a man who's been in Selena Valley and been in. You know, all of these different prisons, high desert state prisons, in some of the worst locations in the country. And uh, and it's a group of people, we got a fan base that ain't never been spoke for. And so we gonna do it, he's gonna speak for him. So I'm excited for that. And Koba is an example of what he's capable of. If you ever get on the track with me about something that concentrated and actually write his verse, and we're not told him to. Like, you got about an hour to be done with that. And to get it written and then come in the booth and lay it. Uh, it's a testament to his ability to, to actually pull it off with this record that we're doing with him. And then Low Key, of course, is an OG veteran, Low for the Brain. Sick hmm. made, made sick. And uh, we're going to do his album and getting heard out there the way he's supposed to. I've always been heard. Uh, and then I got my boy Yogi Calhoun. Oh, he's. East Oakland, 90s in the building, and so we'll see what we're working on with Yogi. He pretty much Yogi's a self-sufficient kind of guy, so Yogi will probably pop up on me with a master and be like, "Hey, then get this polished stuff. Let's go." <laughs> uh, at this point, and like knowing Yogi, he's gonna give me the stamp. He's gonna want me to take care of his mix and master. I was so obsessed with quality and sound in the pen that I came home. I came home with a ear. You know, it's only yep. two or three people fucking with me on Mixed and Master because I know what every wrong thing sounds like and I know how to get rid of it now. Yeah. <laughs> so, <Sure>. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. Mix the sound quality. And so you can execute the best rate. It's going to be one of the most well-mixed and mastered albums in the history of hip-hop for that reason. It's a result of my trauma, really. Yeah. I'm trying so hard to be heard for the clarity. And so I also did Yogi Town the bird, my girl Sanai is on there. Lockstar Entertainment, Seaway Music. Lizzo, uh, of course, is always gonna be with me no matter what I do. And my boy Cali Boy Kid is on there. And uh, my boy David Benezzi, Dave Benezzi, he uh, he did a mix of master on a few songs. Uh, but he's also gonna be doing an album called King Made for Lockstar. Okay. I'm producing a new. Only Coleon album. Uh, it's gonna be an X-rated Only Coleon album that we're gonna do probably in the next couple of weeks. We'll get it done and, and go from there on looking for a release date. But I'm gonna produce his solo too. I'm gonna produce Steve Nutty's next solo record, no. uh, and uh, I'm gonna produce the Smith Dirty solo record because no. I've always wanted my little homie to be heard. Right, I'm gonna do a record for Tsunami. I'm gonna mix and master. I'm gonna, I'm gonna executive produce it, A and R, pick the beats myself, stick with him, write the songs, make sure that we get what we want and put that out. So we gonna call that Water World uh, tsunami. Little homie, they, they know him for being young Bob. They called him Bishop when he was messing with brain sick. You know, right now we calling his name a tsunami and he rocking with Lost Entertainment. Cool. So I'm gonna produce that as well, and then we're gonna get everything from Seaway done. So I got a lot coming. I'm on my friend's music right now. We're going to flood the game with content, let the people tell us what they like, and then I'm going to bring a circus to your town. It's Block Star. We're touring on our own. We don't need nobody. And we'll go. I'll jump on stage with whoever. 
But for the most part, Glock start, I'm trying to come to town with my own buses, my own trucks, my own bands, my own lights, my own smoke system, you know, my own merchandise, so, my own everything, and do it myself. Independent, yep. Independent. What uh what are some topics that we can expect on the album? Well, we having a conversation about the death penalty the need for it. Should it should it not exist? There's a conversation implied in that. There's a conversation about maturity and the need for maturity. There's a conversation being had about the mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex, about prison system being the new slave system. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a conversation about the fact that I'm one of the dopest rappers breathing in the history of the culture. Mm. And uh, we're willing to put that on anybody. If they want to listen to it, break it down, and get a bar of lyrics and argue if that's true or not, I'm going to get a whole bunch of people who think I'm right. And so we want to put that out there. And the album is accomplishing that. And not just saying I'm one of the best ever, but metaphors, similes, and the whole thing, matches, idioms, parables, we doing it all. When you listen to Huda Koba, it's an argument with Koba and Caesar from Planet of the Apes about whether or not humans should or shouldn't exist. And I'm using that as a way to talk about the politics between the criminal element and the, the, the law enforcement element. Mm. The people who hate the police is basically a very creative way of reexamining the whole fuck the police thing. Mm. You know, it's an argument about law enforcement killing our children and and, and abusing our people and one person wanting the culture to turn on them and just raise wage war on them and the other person taking that more Martin Luther King approach to that ain't gonna work that ain't the way you win fighting back to how they justify the killing but love and resistance and education and taking that step up, up fighting through the system is how you gonna go your third blood marshal that's how you win and so Caesar the intelligent monkey is having a conversation about why we gotta go the other way and Koba, mm. that angry street kid really a metaphor for the angry street kid is to think we need to kill them all so it's an all lives matter black lives matter argument that God's explaining that it ain't and ain't nobody did that ain't nobody did that what advice would you give a young rapper who's wanting to pursue music as a career my advice would be Everything that you could do on your own, do it. Don't wait for nobody to do nothing for you. If you need to get your buy your software, get a laptop, and learn how to produce your own music. Uh, if you got a crew of people that already know how to do it, be, be loyal to that crew and go in there and work and write your songs. Once you got them wrote, find out how to do direct distribution straight to the people on your own. And that way, if you do want to do a deal, you come at that deal with a firmer position of strength. And not as a, you ain't got to be a beggar. Now you come talking about what, you know, this is what I need, and they either got to give it to you or not. Or you can turn their money down for higher percentages. What a higher percentage for what I earn, and I don't want a dollar from you up front. And so I would tell them to try to minimize costs and maximize their proficiency, and then be loyal to the scheme. The people that got you where you need to be need to be the people who with you at the end of the day once you succeed. You know, Leo Cohen. Kevin Lyles, Russell Simmons, that whole original team, Rick Rubin, ask them how they feel about each other to this day, and they're going to tell you they love each other. And that's, and Def Jam is still here, still working. And they all still out there. Warner Brothers, they had Atlantic, they had, they had Tony, 
they they all over the place and their fingerprints are all over the hip hop culture because they stayed together and they worked hard and that started just with LL Cool J. And I say, why can't you do the same thing? You know what I mean? And you mm-hmm. see people like same music and be here forever. God bless them, man. That's employing a lot of people. And you see what happened with uh RBC records, how they built. And I feel like we can build them things ourselves. Shout out to Army Guys for what he's doing with Empire. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. I got M- Empire deal over there. I got a catalog I can I can submit over there whenever I want to. I got stuff already out over there. And so, you know, these are things that we got to be trying to figure out how to do on our own. And how can people get connected with you? Yeah, anybody want to holler at me can go to honorabeshine.com online. Honorabeshine.com. A-N-E-R-A-U-D-E-S-H-A-U-G-A-T-O-N. HonorWebSign.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.
Akash Darby and some new random producer, I'm a fuck with my guy. Right. And the same is true with my boy Travis in uh, Toronto. My boy Dave Vanessiano out in Arizona. I'm fucking with Vanessa Studios before I'm willing to fuck with niggas. Boy Wonder called me and I had a song and, and Vanessa said he wanted to produce it. I would choose him over Boy Wonder. Right. And that's the way I really feel. And then not because I don't like Boy Wonder. It's because the same way Drake made hip hop change their sound. Like, did nobody want a boy wanted to beat until they started hearing, hearing what Drake did? Yeah. Did nobody want no beats from Noah 40 to be until Drake popped off? Drake used his own squad. And then, and the ones who didn't stay loyal, they vanished. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Teammates yeah. where, you know, you, you fuck with teammates and then if the teammates is gone. And I'm looking at that with my own crew, like, why do I need these dudes when I see repeatedly the people popped up? Tech Nine didn't use producers, other niggas who do you know, Seven got yeah. bangers. Jack Nine is over there with his own squad and made other niggas want his shit. And so I'm looking at that thinking, I'm, like I said, faith and resilience. To me, that's doable. Yeah. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'll use my own squad. Lock banger production. Lock banger production. And that's what we rolling under. And, if you, and they, now I'm looking at everybody else saying, if y'all want to be, I got two. Uh, not the other way around. I don't need nothing. I'm straight as teammates. Listen to the execution of X Rated and hear me when I tell you it's too late. They they took too long. And not only did they take too long, but our squad did it and we did it better. Listen to the sound quality. Listen to the mix and master. Listen to the quality of the audio. Listen to the quality of the concept. It's it's too late. If I went outside my camp, I'd be taking a step down. That's on my mama. Mm. There ain't nobody gonna do that better than, than what we just did. If I said you can put me with Dr. Dre and Eminem. If you can't put me with Dre and Eminem, I can get the same quality as anybody in the world or better already. I don't need no help. Period. Tell me that with a straight face today. Too late already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yo, what's up? This is Jay Havana. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hood Talks. This episode of Hood Talks was produced by Jay Havana and DJ EFN. Our theme music is produced by Big Drain. It's titled Home Team, which you can hear on DJ EFN's album, Another Time. Be sure to check out more episodes of Hood Talks, available on all digital platforms and crazyhood.com. The shit's worth hearing. The Execution of X-Rated is available on all digital platforms and you can stream it here on crazyhood.com. Check out the first hey. single titled hey. Jokers, yeah. Why So Serious. Hey. Block Star Trek. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, We gave him reasonable doubt. Yeah. Now these jokers are being unreasonable. Whoa. Stories they tell are feasible. New name in their crucible. Be unbelievable. Whoa. Whoa. They're immaculately inconceivable. All of these aims, listen to aim, behave it. We can't see the jiggies if it's inconceivable. They don't individually pass the eye test, meaning they don't pass the eye test. I'm 2020 gonna fly test. Shooters digest. Whoa. So like it pop is unleasable. Our flavor is ever receivable. No. We have reasonable doubt. Now these jokers are being unreasonable. Go. My principles are all set in stone. There'll be no pliability. A single solitary alibi. Provide an attorney with deniability. My enemies fall asleep and dream of dying. Trying or killing me. 
So I'ma beg the rest and the Luke and the cops With agility, proper preparation prevents poor performance And practice producing proficiency That's a testament to my blessings More than a statement of ability They have none in all that assets Unreliability And I'm curious since with the biggest serious Become a liability Jokers, why so serious? Had no sense of humor I heard it said that I'm a disrespectful bully Shut up, bitch, go to hell Those are just rumors of war Why so serious? Had no sense of humor This bullet to eat up his brain like a tumor It's future but private about to get gloomer Now whoa Why so serious? Why so serious? Why so serious? Had no sense of humor? Whoa, hey Why so serious? Why so serious? Why so serious? Had no sense of humor? Whoa there's a chance of fog and lover's ability My thoughts pop up on them like what's the reason for all the stability There's a chance of violence and if you survive I fold the stability There's a commandment of silence, it's all misery, prison, improbability There's a demand for violence, the country's obsessed with the characters, villainy Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Unholy Trinity, give us a trilogy, 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 woo! I need a beat from the Justice League Compared to where I just came from, kryptonite is a luxury for you jokers Why so serious? Had no sense of humor, I heard it said that I'm a disrespectful bully Shut up, bitch, go to hell, those are just rumors, so whoa Why so serious? Had no sense of humor, this bullet to eat up his brain like a tumor It's future, but private, about to get gloomer, now whoa Why so serious? Why so serious? Why so serious? Had no sense of humor? Whoa, hey, why so serious? Why so serious? Why so serious? Had no sense of humor? Go! We gave him reasonable doubt yeah. Now these jokers are being unreasonable. Whoa. Stories they tell are feasible. New name in their crucible. Be unbelievable. Whoa. Whoa. They're immaculately inconceivable. All of these angsters in the aim behaviors. If we can't see the jiggers, it's conceivable. They don't individually pass the eye test. Meaning they don't pass the eye test. I'm 2020 gonna fly test. We just digest. So like hip hop is unleashable. Our flavor is ever receivable. We have a reasonable doubt. Now these jokers are being unreasonable. Jokers. Why so serious? Had no sense of humor. I heard it said that I'm a disrespectful bully. Shut up, bitch. Go to hell. Those are just rumors. So whoa. Why so serious? Had no sense of humor. This bullet to eat up his brain like a tumor. It's future, but private. About to get gloomer. Now whoa. Why? So so serious, hey, why so serious? Why so serious? Had they no sense of humor? Whoa, hey, why so serious? Why so serious? Why so serious? Had they no sense of humor? Go!
Yo, what's up? This is Jay Havana. You're listening to Hood Talks. And this is a Crazy Hood exclusive. 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 Exclusive.